Thank you very much. I uh, appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here this morning. Um, early birds here. I'm impressed that you're here. I thought I would have a conversation with like four people this morning. This is Las Vegas, you know. Unless, of course, the topic is kind of topical because of what happened last night, perhaps preventing chronic pain and headaches this morning. Uh, but anyways, I'm really pleased that you're here um, and appreciate uh, your interest in this topic, which is, seems to be kind of a foreign topic in the chronic pain area. Uh, and let me give you a little background. You know, I'm a dentist. Uh, but I trained after dental school. I was interested in pain because I injured my back. I was really laid up while I was in dental school, had a hard time getting out of bed. And so uh, I went to, of course, the orthopedist, student health, and the doctors, and they gave me all these prescriptions, medications, and other offered other treatments, including surgery. And you know, none of that really helped too much. And then he said, well, you got to do sit-ups all the time. You have to do sit-ups all the time. So I did hundreds of sit-ups every day. It just made it worse. Uh, then finally, uh, my roommate, who happened to be taking a yoga class, said, oh, you should try this yoga class. And so I went to the yoga class. Uh, and well, actually, I didn't even go to the class. I, I have to admit, I just took his handouts. And I did the exercises, the yoga sun salutation. I'm not really good about going to class in contrast to you guys here, which uh, I'm pretty impressed. Um, so I started doing yoga within, I mean, I had pain for like two, three months, difficult to even get to class. And I'm tall, thin, you know, and I, I bend easily. And so uh, I started doing the yoga. Within two weeks, all the pain was gone. I thought, what the heck is this? Why didn't the medical doctors that I talked to knew about the simple strategy of stretching my back that would alleviate the pain. And so uh, then I decided, hey, you know, I'm in dental school. Maybe I should get into this pain management field. So I convinced the Department of Anesthesiology at UCLA in the pain management clinic to allow me as a dentist to join anesthesiology residency in the medical school and do a residency in pain management. And I was pretty convincing them, probably more then than now, but, you know, but you'll see after this uh, presentation. So they said yes, they let me in. So I spent three years doing anesthesiology residency, rotating through all the medical school areas, trying to figure out this puzzle of pain. And mainly, well, first of all, of course, to help patients, but secondly, to make sure that I did not get back into that status of pain all the time. It's miserable, and I have to admit, uh, and have a lot of empathy for my patients who are suffering from pain. And so at that time, I learned all the complementary, alternative, and traditional medical approaches to pain, from medication, surgery, injections, and blocks, and, and I was an expert at all those things. And so I then left UCLA after three years, went to the University of Minnesota. I said, well, we've got to, what am I going to do now? This, there's not a field of pain management at the time. So I thought, well, I better get a job at the university because maybe nobody will ever come to see me as a clinician, even though there's lots of pain out there. So I set up my practice at the university as a professor, young professor. I started a graduate program in this area. We've trained about 30 full-time uh, clinicians in pain management since then. 
We started an NIH grant program looking at, well, what is the cause of pain over time? Not only what's the diagnosis, but what causes that diagnosis over time? And uh, so we had lots of funding, um, and uh, people were very interested in the research that we were doing at the time. And I continued to work with patients on a regular basis, set up a private practice. There was a multidisciplinary team. Um, but still, what happened with my patients was interesting. Uh, is everybody get, got better, but it was only short term. Whenever I did my tr- injections or blocks or medications, they got better short term. And they'd get better, and, and then they'd come back a few months later and say, well, I'm aggravated again, or I still have this pain. It's coming back, so I escalate the medications, or I do a few more blocks. And then, then I sort of, after about 10 years of that, I realized I woke up to the fact that really it's not my treatments that were helping them. For one thing, it was the relationship they had with me. I was very encouraging and positive and supportive. Uh, the treatments did work, but they worked primarily short-term. But, so then I started looking at, well, my put two and two together, my research on causes, and I found that there's so many lifestyle factors that played a role in developing chronic pain. I thought, well, let me apply that to my patients. That's when I started training my patients to reduce those factors that seem to be causing the pain over time. And once I started doing that, I was floored. The treatments that I was once doing that were temporary now have a longer-term effect. And when patients were coming in, they, they said, oh, yeah, I have an aggravation of my neck pain because I was sitting at the computer all the time, shrugging my shoulders, or I was clenching my teeth. And uh, they, were, they knew what was causing their pain, and they were able to identify it, reduce those factors, which, of course, uh, alleviated their pain more long-term. They still came in, they still wanted the treatments, whether it was medications to some extent, but many of them decided, no, I wasn't going to get treatment. I just wanted to learn what was causing my pain. So that, at that point, now 30 years later, or what, 40 years later? Sorry, <laughs> I'm getting old. Uh, I decided, well, you know, this is, some, this is a message that we all need to know about that we all need to know that our treatments work quite well, but it's more important to train the patient. And so now every patient that comes in, I say one thing. I say, I'm happy to treat your pain, but it's more effective long-term if we also train you to reduce the causes of your pain. And we call that a transformative care model that integrates treatment with training And it's something that we don't, frankly, have time to do. Train patients. I mean, I have 10 to 15 minutes. It's enough to kind of diagnose and figure out what's going on and and identify the cause. But to spend that time training, uh, I don't. So we started this kind of uh, shift to preventing chronic pain. And that's what this topic is about this morning. So uh, currently still at the University of Minnesota, but also shifted my research focus to health partners because it is a health system. It has the ability to take some of the stuff that we're doing and apply it immediately to their patients. I have no financial disclosures. Uh, you know the learning objectives. 
we'll cover topics of this dilemma of chronic pain. Now that I've given you a little bit of background of at least my orientation, how important it is to prevent chronic pain. And prevention means not just preventing pain from starting originally, but also preventing from acute to chronic, and as importantly, chronic to intractable. And uh, expanding education, research, and advocacy in preventing chronic pain and toolkits that we have developed or are in the process of developing to help accomplish this. So we all know chronic pain is a big elephant in the room of healthcare. And the Institute of Medicine stated that it was $635 billion are spent on chronic pain, more than all of heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. We all know this. Mayo Clinic study showing that uh, uh, it is the number one reason to go to the doctor or a health professional in the first place. 67% of all visits. It's the most common chronic condition. And you can see how chronic pain is. Uh, compared to all of these other conditions. So we all know that. Number one cause of disability also, um, back pain particularly, arthritis, back and spine problems, and the number one cost driver of health care. And, and uh, this is a, a cost analysis from health partners looking at what is the most expensive or uh, most productive depends on how you look at it, uh, area of medicine. And you can see orthopedics and rheumatology are kind of at the top. It's also the number one cause of addiction. More people start opioid addiction or dependency from pain conditions than any other reason. So we find that headache and facial pain are really the most common. Everybody has a headache, and I hope you don't have a headache from what's happened last night necessarily, but... It's a very common problem, uh, facial pain and headaches, temple pain, jaw pain, and neck pain. Joint pain is the most expensive, and 33% reported joint pain in the last 30 days. And back and neck pain cause more disability. Uh, so these are the most common problems, and we spend billions really treating these conditions, as I mentioned. Uh, but this is probably the most important slide or most important concept to remember that, that uh, most people with pain at one month, and several studies have shown this, and there needs to be more studies looking at this long-term progression of chronic pain, still have pain five years later. And that's despite lots of treatment and uh, interventions that are done, and 20% develop long-term disability. So at least in our clinic, we weren't doing a very good job 20 years ago in managing patients. They would get better, yes, great, but they wouldn't stay better. If they had pain at one month, they still progressed and continued to have pain five years later despite the treatments. So what do we do about it? So really, the solution is something that applies to many other areas of healthcare, but we haven't yet applied it to chronic pain. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So what we need, what is, what is the prevention? What, it's more of an epidemiological sort of concept. Well, can we apply that to a clinical situation? And if we do, how do we do that? And so 
part of my presentation is discuss the, the parameters for under that. And one of the two, the two concepts are very important. This concept of risk factors, which is like the cause, increases the risk of progression of an illness over time, and protective factors, which are like cures. In other words, those things that minimize the chance of progression or developing an illness. So risk factor is a characteristic condition <clears throat> or behavior, such as diet, sleep, stress, or smoking, that increases the possibility of illness, injury, or pain. And in pain, it increases inflammation or peripheral or central sensitization. Whereas protective factors are characteristics, conditions, behaviors, such as exercise or a healthy diet or good sleep, reduce stress, that prevents or reduces vulnerability to developing an illness over time. So the risk principle then is that if you have an injury and you have acute pain, that if you have lots of risk factors, poor posture, you're clenching, you're tensing, you're not sleeping very well, you poor diet, uh, not exercising, you will have delayed healing and the development of chronic pain. So in contrast, so the risk principle then follows that if you have few protective factors and a lot of risk factors, you're going to get delayed recovery or persistence of that pain condition. Now, protective principle, which is something we should all pay attention to very well, and I'm sure we do to some extent, is if we have an injury or acute pain and there's lots of protective factors, say we exercise every day, we do yoga like now I do for the last like 40 years of my life, because I don't want my pain to come back. Uh, if you have those protective factors, despite perhaps not sleeping as well as I could or working too much on the computer, writing, tensing my shoulders, all the different risk factors, despite those, if I have lots of protective factors, my pain won't come back. So the protective principle is you want to have fewer risk factors and you want to have more protective factors, doing those things that contribute to health and well-being and, of course, minimizing pain. So what are these risk factors and protective factors? Well, obviously, in a 50-minute lecture, I don't have time to really go through all of them, but this is kind of a summary of the area. So if you look in epidemiology and look at risk factors, you find that they seem to fall into these seven different areas of our lives. And that's, of course, uh, physical risk factors in our body, uh, lifestyle factors, emotional factors, our spirit or passion, purpose, beliefs, hopes, our society or our social relationships, our mind or cognitive factors, thoughts and attitudes, and our environment, uh, which is really the number one uh, most common risk factor is in our environment. That's our interaction with the physical environment. And you can see some of these examples of risk factors that are... So in the literature, what we look for are those, uh, the studies that are longitudinal studies, and you measure these factors, then you follow people over time. And you see, well, if a person has really bad posture, that that will cause pain to continue over time or to get worse over time. So that's the basic principle this is epidemiological research. This is what I've kind of devoted my career to, is to studying these risk factors on what causes them. But interestingly enough, in epidemiology also, there's not much work on protective factors. So that's, that's only kind of a, 
grown in the last, say, 10 to 15 years to really look at the things that are positive influences on a patient's life and health and well-being and, and pain. And in actuality, when you look at both of them, at least from both a clinical and my research perspective, both of them, uh, protective factors are much more important than, than risk factors. So if you exercise every day, you maintain good posture, you eat well, you sleep well, do all the things that we all know that are healthy and uh, contribute to our well-being are also things that will prevent pain. So for patients, it's hard to understand the whole concept of risk and protective factors. How many people are non-health professionals here who are attending this meeting and uh, are pain patients or whatever? Is it all pretty much health professionals here? Okay. All right. Oh. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, in any case, what I talk to the patients about is this volume control. So risk factors are like a volume control that can turn it up, and protective factors are like a volume control that turns it down. Patients seem to understand that fairly well, and it's parallels to some of the concepts uh, in central and peripheral sensitization. So we, what we do is we train patients then on preventing chronic pain and addiction too. And we do that through enhancing protective factors and reducing risk factors. And so how do we do that? Um, so we have started a campaign through the International Myopain Society on, on preventing chronic pain. Uh, and, the, and the concept really is that pain is real, it's physical, uh, generally, it's preventable. You just have to learn how to do that. And so we have, uh, one of the goals is to do health professional training. And so I have done lots of lectures. And I'll talk about a course that I'm offering right now that's free for anybody in the world on preventing chronic pain. So we have do education. Uh, and oh, here's the course on preventing chronic pain, a human systems approach. And this is uh, available through the University of Minnesota through a website called Coursera and uh, .org. And you just search uh, pain, and you'll see the course. It is available for continuing medical or dental education, nursing education, et cetera. Um, it is also um, half of the people taking it are patients, even though it's geared towards health professionals. So. Uh, we've had about 40,000 people take the course in the last couple of years, and uh, quite a few people. Here's some of the comments. 93% of the participants said that it did change their life, and 85% of health professionals felt that it changed the care of their patients. And you can read some of the quotes of, about the uh, course. And I was kind of blown away by this. Uh, I thought this was going to be an online course taken by about 50 people, mostly friends of mine. Uh, but it was, there's a lot of uh, uh, interest uh, in this whole concept of preventing chronic pain. And it is 7.30 in the morning, and you guys are here too, so that's, uh, that's very nice. So we also wanted to uh, provide uh, the concept of transformative care. How do you integrate these prevention concepts into our routine clinical practice? And so uh, we believe uh, an approach that's interdisciplinary, integrative, and individualized is important using a transformative care model that integrates treatment with training with a team. 
And we do have uh, health coaching as part of our program. So, you know, we have health psychologists, we have physical therapists. They've, their primary role is in training and coaching patients on how to make the changes that they need to do to really move forward in, in preventing their pain, their chronic pain. So we have a training and certification uh, program at the University of Minnesota for health coaching. Most of it is, is uh, uh, online, but uh, there are, so people can take that, the coaching course uh, from a distance and then come in once a month for, uh, for in-person training. So it's a very good program. And it's not about uh, you know, cracking the whip and, and getting people to, to change. It's really about help, helping set goals giving them the social support they need to make the changes that they need, and to some extent educating them on the fact that they can do this, they can make the changes, they can improve things as simple as posture. It's like baby steps. It's like little things. It's not as if you have to just revamp your entire life, and, and uh, it's about how do you sit up in a chair. When you sit down, where do you sit? you sit with your butt forward on the chair, lean back, slouch with your head forward? Or do you sit with your butt all the way back in a chair and then lean back so your head is over your shoulders and it's balanced and relaxed? Little things like that are, are play a significant role in a patient's pain. And so we do a lot of patient training, and we found that uh, the web-based or online training is pretty effective and uh, based somewhat on our online course, but also uh, some of the literature on online training is very effective. Now, training, teaching, the education piece is about 20 to 30%. The rest is up to the patient to do their action plan. We call it an action plan, where they develop a strategy for which to reduce risk factors and enhance protective factors once they know what's causing it. And it reminds me of this uh, 81-year-old patient that I had. I was treating his wife and his daughter for headaches and neck pain and jaw pain, and, and they were doing really well. And he would come. He was 81 years old. He was retired vice president of a large uh, company in Minneapolis. And so he was in his retirement, and he was enjoying himself, but he was attending the visits with his wife and his daughter. And, and so at, after a couple months of care uh, coming in, we're teaching and training uh, his wife and daughter on how to reduce their pain. He came up to me after and says, you know, I wonder if you could help me also. Um, I have had a headache every day for the last 65 years. 65 years? I said, haven't you had any treatment for this? And he said, well, I have. I've gone to many doctors. I think I've gone to probably 15 different doctors, and I've tried almost every medication, and nothing seems to help. It all works short term. And so I said, well, sure, I'd be happy to treat you. I'm, you know, we can try to find out what's causing your pain and then see if we can change it. And so we did an evaluation on the first visit, uh, I realized, and we do uh, what we call a risk assessment. You know, we have a long questionnaire. First thing I always say to patients, I'm so sorry for that long questionnaire. But that's the only way we really know who you are and all the factors that might be contributing to the pain. So I always apologize, but then, so he filled that out, and I went through it. And, and we discovered at that first visit 
that he had a habit of holding his teeth together all the time. He wasn't really clenching because he wasn't under a lot of stress. He's retired, 81. Um, but he was just resting his teeth together, and sometimes the clenching is intense, you know, because he's a vice president, businessman, and everything. And so he just had a habit of doing that his whole life. So, and I said, well, you know, one of the risk factors for headaches, if he had temple headaches and neck headaches, the kind of muscular primarily. Uh, all the muscles were tender and sore. And so I said, you know, you just cannot bring your teeth together at all. You have to keep your tongue up and teeth apart. And when you do that, and then we gave him exercises to do, so stretching out the muscles, his muscles are very tight in the neck and the jaw. And we, this is what we always do at the first visit, just kind of do a little risk assessment and do a cursory screening of all these factors that may be contributing to it. So he went home that day and just pondered what I was thinking about, and he stopped bringing his teeth together. Then within the next, about three or four weeks later, he came back in, and his headaches, he says, you know, I had a week without headaches. And he was really mad that he had a week without headaches. I said, why are you mad? He says, because why didn't somebody tell me this 65 years ago, that I shouldn't have my teeth together all the time? And, uh, that, and that happens over and over and over again in our clinic, that patients, the average years that someone's seen doctors for, for before they see me is about five or six years, that they're suffering from pain. Once we find out what that combination of factors, which is not an easy task, but when you find that out and teach the patients how to do that, you have a better chance of, of really improving uh, the condition long term. So we found that the education piece is so time-consuming that we prefer to just put it, put it online. So that's what we've attempted to do with our online training programs. And so we've developed these training programs which are web-based. They're based on cognitive behavioral training with generally evidence-based uh, patient-centered approach. We try to make it creative with animated characters. We try to make it personalized identifying the causes, make it positive, the more focus on protective factors and making it a positive experience, and then instead of a negative. And, you know, it was funny. We put together some of the websites, and I put pictures of people in pain on the website. And my patient advocates or patient sort of co-investigators said, don't put those pictures on there. It looks like you're causing pain. Said, put happy people on, people with, who have gotten better from the pain. So we've changed our whole orientation secondary to comments from patients about our websites. So positive, comprehensive, we talk about baby steps, that it's just small little changes that really have an impact over time. We have reminders, and we have uh, social support. And this is a, a study that is funded now by the National Institute of Health to look at in a randomized controlled trial the efficacy of this type of approach. And so we have, we're developing these toolkits for individuals, for health professionals to help implement this within our care model that we currently have and employers. And what we're including in there is the pain assessment relative to all the other patients. We're looking at risk assessment with goal setting and it's not just risk assessment. We call it because that's what the health plans want us to reimburse as a risk assessment, but it's really a risk and a protective factor assessment that's most important. 
What are they doing right, and how do you reinforce those positive things? And then uh, experiential homework. Well, then the personalized online training is based on the results of the risk assessment. So you've got these factors going on. You're doing these great things. How do you reduce those risk factors? What is a practical strategy for you to be able to do that? And we put it into this experiential homework or an action plan that we try to identify and change each of those risk factors and really enhance protective factors, which is a more of a generalized approach, exercise, posture, stretching, self-efficacy, understanding, realistic expectations. You go to all the way down, all those protective factors, and uh, we hit every one. We have 40 different lessons that uh, the patients, each one is about five to 10 minutes long. Uh, mainly presented by animated uh, characters, uh, Combing Kate, uh, Action Annie, Barrier Bob, Overcoming Barriers, uh, Professor Payne. So these are characters that are uh, within the program that help the patient understand the specific aspects of their training. And we have a manual and we have uh, seminars uh, for health professionals. Um, and so the, the health professional toolkit is really about uh, assessment and training programs for each patient. How do we implement this? And, I, and it's interesting. I've had some conversations with large health systems in Minnesota because we want to implement th this strategy a little bit broad scale. Um, and actually, even earlier on in the sort of progression of chronic pain, we don't want them to get to the point of having to send them to us five years later with this chronic intractable pain on opioids. They've had surgery multiple times. I had one patient that had surgery 32 times on the jaw. Of course, they have neuropathic pain that's intractable at this point, and it's really hard to manage those patients at that time. Um, but we want to get them at the primary care level, the primary care physician, the primary care uh, nurse and, and dentist and dental professionals so that they begin to recognize when a patient comes in with headaches and it's just in that first month or even in the first six months, if you begin to say, teach the patient what's causing the pain, that's a very simple message. And, the, and what's hard to do, and this is kind of a, almost an, like an argument with some of the leaders of primary care. So what do we have to say to the patients? They, you know, nobody wants to take on any more responsibility, understand it. it you know, we're already overwhelmed with so much, so much uh, electronic medical records and guidelines and, and uh, scrutiny of the care provide, that we're providing um, that it's hard to add anything to a primary care practice. ICD-10 codes, yes, right, exactly. I know. And, and you know, it doesn't allow for a lot of room. Yeah. So, so thank you for that comment because, uh, so, well, one thing we asked the primary care docs to say is, that is what I said earlier. I said, we are happy to treat your pain, medications, blocks, interventions, whatever. 
But it's more effective long-term if we also train you to reduce the cause. That one simple, are you interested? Then I say, are you interested? Now, when I say that to my patients, 100% of patients say, yes, why? Are you kidding? Of course I want to reduce the cause of the pain. But nobody ever says that to patients. We don't ever say, well, do you want to be trained on reducing the cause? It's such a foreign thing. We take care of patients. We provide a treatment that works for you. You go home, you do this treatment, and it's going to get better. You don't have to worry about it then. That's not the message. The message is you have to worry. It's your pain, and it's there for a reason. It's muscular. It's a joint. It's nerve pain. It's vascular headaches, migraine, whatever. But there is a reason that it's there. And, and we can help you figure out what that is. And we can help you, train you on changing it. Now, but see, that's the, that's the problem, is the training takes time. So how do you do that in a primary care practice that's very busy? You don't, we don't even have 15 minutes to explain what they need to do. I don't have 15 minutes. And so this is where we have to have a new model uh, to accomplish that. So these health professional toolkits, getting back to that after the, uh, the story here, is that uh, can this be done online by just pressing a button in your electronic medical record, sends the patient an email, you have to explain it, well, we have a training program for you. That's all you say. You have a training program for you to help you do that. It goes through, it does the risk assessment, introduces them, it's a letter from the doctor, it introduces the patient to the risk assessment, to the whole program, the whole concepts that I'm talking about. And, it's, uh, it, and it helps the patients go through an eight-week program with an, only a 50 minutes or an hour a week of screen time. We don't want to add to their screen time because that's one of the big risk factors is sitting around watching TV or playing video games all the time. I mean, that is a risk factor. So uh, we want them to be very engaged in it, learn these concepts, and then we have a health coach that sort of supports them in the process of changing. And we do this right now at Health Partners. Uh, we have health coaching. It's sort of teleconferencing or a phone. I mean, everybody has a phone at least. They may not have a computer, so it can be done in a clinic. Uh, but it allows them to have somebody who's rooting for them, say, yes, you can do this. Now, we also allow for social support, you know, friends and families to kind of join on, kind of see the progress, also root them, because most people that have pain have family members or friends that also have pain, and they sort of share and compare notes on their pain conditions and what they're doing. It's a, it's a topic of conversation. So they then can also learn to prevent chronic pain. And so we also have this uh, online course for health professionals, and we, those people who will register as part of, will become part of a chronic pain research network or a prevention research network to be able to aggregate the outcomes, because outcomes are tracked over time with the patient. So you, you know what their pain level is. You know what their activity level is. You also know um, how their health care use is. So self-report. We, we don't, I mean, we can pull it out electronic medical records, but it gets, it's a cumbersome process. Better to just ask the patient, well, how many medications are you taking each week? How many pills? 
Have you seen any emergency rooms? Have you gone to the doctor? Uh, and those types of things. So we're also, uh, we haven't developed this yet, but we have, uh, we think that employers are, it's very important that we get uh, in the workforce because a lot of the risk factors do occur in, in, as an employee uh, at work. So although sometimes the risk factors are at home, many times they're at work. Repetitive strain injuries, postural stressors, uh, social stressors uh, can play a significant role. So we have developing these toolkits for assessment and training of, of employees. So the training really integrates uh, a combination of science, most of the research on risk factors and protective factors. It's a lot of common sense that's sort of built into this. Uh, we, we really believe uh, that has to make sense to patients. Otherwise, they're not going to do this. You know, if, if, if the, the language is too high, too high health literacy, they don't really understand. If it doesn't make sense to them, they're not going to do it. So that's another question I ask all the time. Does this make any sense to you? And they always say, yes, yes, of course, that you know, makes sense. But sometimes they say, well, I don't get this part. I don't understand this. And then I try to explain it a little bit more. And so we really have to, they have to, patients have to be ed, not only educated, but engaged and empowered. They have to feel the responsibility. And we, as doctors, it's really hard to give up that responsibility. I tell them 80% of your success is based on what you do, whereas 20% is based on the treatments that I have. And later on, I lecture a couple more times today, I'll go through the systematic reviews of all the pain treatments, or many of the pain treatments, uh, that are out there. And interestingly enough, about 10, all the treatments work, first of all. In clinical trial, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trials, they all work. We all know that. And the marketing shows that, too. But they only work about 10% above placebo. So that means it's a, it is effective, uh, but just a little bit. And it's mainly short-term. So that's why uh, patients really uh, have to be told it's really up to you. We have to shift it up to you to do this. Are you willing to do this? Are you willing to learn? And they all say yes, but then once they get into it, some, you know, there are those people who do it and some people who don't do it. But the more they connect with you as a health professional to support them and reinforce them in the fact that they need to make the changes. 80% of their success is based on what they do. So then it's a lot about experiential learning. Uh, as Confucius says, I hear and I forget, I see and I remember, and I do and I understand. This is about an action plan. They actually have to do things. They can't just learn about it. They have to actually go through the exercises, go through the sit sitting differently, go through understanding where they should hold their tongue, go through a diet. I mean, what does it feel like to eat a Mediterranean diet that's focused on no sugar, little, if any, caffeine? And I know we love caffeine, so I don't want to go there too much. Um, but uh, all of these changes from exercising and posture and relaxation, we have a we want them to, to do a calming procedure, 
you know, at least once a day where they spend five or ten minutes deep breathing, calming their central nervous system down so that it begins to regulate in a normal way. Um, and uh, how do they uh, change their environment? I mean, there are some houses you go, you go into and they're so cluttered that it's so easy to fall and have an accident. It's real, you know, and driving, you know, there's some drivers out there that you know you just want to stay away from because they're going to have an accident. Preventing pain means not only preventing pain from getting worse, but also preventing those accidents that lead to pain. And so we have a whole issue, whole sort of lessons on the environmental factors that play a role. And so most importantly, they need to know themselves, uh, as Socrates said. So we also have a research uh, program, and I talked about the Chronic Pain Research Network. So anybody working with us within our network, we have a couple of funded studies that are looking at this, trying to determine more about risk and protective factors, evaluating the needs and uh, treatment needs and patient needs, and developing these tools. Um, and that's this network is a web-based platform that engages both providers and patients in patient-based research and education. And we do track and, and aggregate the outcomes. And then we do a lot of advocacy also. We're advocating to focus as much effort on resources on preventing chronic pain as, as we focus on treatment. And right now there are virtually, well, I don't think there's any studies on preventing chronic pain from funded by NIH or PCORI right now. And so it's, uh, it's a kind of a hard sell. The industry is so huge and everything's focused on treatment that there's very little time left or interest on this whole concept of prevention. So we're taking it to the patients. I mean, we believe it's the, really this patient. So we're going to the patient advocacy groups and saying, you know, this is your life, your pain. Uh, you need to really support the development of this, this, these types of efforts. And we believe that it it's, will be a triple win, that, that uh, patients really uh, improve long-term, uh, less out-of-pocket costs, improve access to care, providers, and it, it enhances your outcome. So, I mean, I love that. I like it when patients come back and say, you know, I don't have any pain anymore. My pain is almost gone. That's a great sales piece for other patients to come to my practice. And of course, employers also reduce healthcare costs, work loss, and disability. And so we have, this is not our studies with regard to cost savings, but we believe there's a significant cost saving by shifting our efforts more towards uh, preventing pain. And uh, we really, one of the things that we do in our course um, for preventing chronic pain is to ask the participants to write their story to understand uh, themselves and all the different risk factors that they have and what are they doing in terms of protective factors within their life in each area of their, their body, their, their lifestyle, their emotions, their social relationships, their spirit, their mind, and it within their environment. And to talk about the little things that they really do to enhance their daily activities. So the question is, would you rather be part of the problem or a huge part of the problem or just a tiny part of the solution? And, uh, of course, so what we want to do is to really support. We have a, a website for preventing chronic pain. 
Uh, you know, if anybody's interested, it's uh, preventingchronicpain.org. Um, and we will have toolkits available for those people who may be uh, interested in using that. And so uh, for patients, for yourself, or even employees, uh, these toolkits can be helped. So I'll leave you with this, as divine as the task to relieve and prevent pain. So I add that. So thank you very much for your attention. I uh, appreciate it. I'm happy to talk further. <laughs>